I'm just a podcaster, so I can't give away free cars like Oprah, but I can give you discounts, and I'm giving all our listeners a 20% discount to our Solar Summit in San Diego on May 1st. Dive deep into the solar industry with GTM, our analysts, our editors, and a bunch of executives from around the industry. Hey, and pat yourself on the back because you're getting a great deal. Go to greentechmedia.com slash events. Use the promo code podcast when you buy your pass to GTM Solar Summit and get 20% off. You know what else is going to make you feel proud of yourself? Buying hardware for your solar or storage project from Shoals Technologies Group. Shoals is a global leader in balance of system solutions for solar and storage, and it's been serving EPCs with the highest quality equipment, combiner boxes, junction boxes, wires, racking, and monitoring solutions for over two decades. This American company has deployed products for more than 25 gigawatts of solar projects all around the world. To find out more about Shoals Equipment, Go to shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S dot com. The Interchange is also brought to you by Five Works. In this digital age, the world expects more. Go beyond meter data. Five Works personalizes digital communication and drives customer behavior at scale. It uses behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning technology to help utilities market to a customer of one. That is how you deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. See how Five Works can help your program succeed. Visit fiveworks.com. That's five works with an X, fiveworks.com slash the interchange. This is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. Shale Khan is away. He'll be back next week. In this episode, I sit down with former EPA chief Gina McCarthy. What's it like seeing the Trump administration take a wrecking ball to her life's work on public health and climate change? Um, what's it like? It's not fun. <laughs> Let's just start there. They came in with a things-to-do list, and that things-to-do list seems to have been written by business without regard at all for the public health and environmental impacts that would result. This is an anomalous moment in the history of America. After all, environmental policy over the last four decades has been more or less bipartisan, at least much more bipartisan compared to today. So I figured it was a good time to check in with Gina. This moment demands an explanation. And when I say the Trump administration is going after her life's work, I'm not embellishing. She's devoted her entire career to this area and was partly responsible for some of the most important climate laws we're talking about today. The legal decision to use the Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gases, the Northeast Carbon Cap and Trade System, and of course the Obama-era Clean Power Plan that was developed when she took the helm of EPA in 2013. Gina doesn't neatly label herself an environmental progressive. She's just super passionate about public health and climate. She's been criticized by many on the left for not doing enough and for supporting the Obama administration's all-the-above approach. And she's known for running an open regulatory process with business involved, making sure they have a voice in rulemaking. So I recently paid Gina a visit at Harvard's Center for Health and the Global Environment, where she now serves as director. I can confirm that she does not have a secret $43,000 phone booth like the new guy sitting in the EPA, although that would have made a great podcasting studio. The conversation was wide in scope. We hopped from politics to the future of the economy to the market forces at work in the energy sector to Scott Pruitt himself. And we started with what else? The toxic partisanship in environmental politics. 
Um, it, 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 the vehemence of the, of the partisanship now is what I think I find, I do find surprising because, you know, I worked for five governors. I was appointed by Governor Dukakis and I worked for, I think, a year, two years for, for Governor Romney. And we made progress all the time during those, those years. We may have had differences in terms of the rate of the progress, but we never went backwards. We never questioned the mission. They all understood that we needed to protect resources and public health. You know, it just wasn't like this before. And frankly, it's one of the most disturbing things that, that has happened over the course of at least my lifetime in this career. A lot of people are searching for the answer of why, and, and clearly it's it's partly a function of money, but there also seems to be a divergence between the local politics and the national politics. And then when you actually get down to the local level, there's a lot less um, disdain for environmental regulations. What, what's your What are your thoughts on what's, what drives that wedge in environmental politics? Stephen, I think we've all sort of scratched our head to try to figure that out. And clearly money plays a role. I think money in politics plays a role, not just individual businesses that see an economic advantage to deregulating. But really, I think there's a concerted effort to provide, to have this be a campaign uh, that is launched. Um, But I I also think that the fact that the pollution challenges that we faced early on that was so visible um, have diminished because of our success. You know, it's what makes the United States a great place to live is the fact that we do have really strong environmental standards and we enforce those standards. And it really provides everybody um, an opportunity to have a healthy living existence. Um, I know we have communities left behind. I know we still have pollution challenges. I know we have to reinvest in things we already invested in if we want to keep them current and successful and efficient. Um, but most people, I think, look outside and, and don't don't remember that Los Angeles and Pittsburgh and Tulsa, Oklahoma were all Beijing's at one time. And we cannot afford to go back there. Uh, so we have to keep the message strong and have people understand that we have to keep investing in this or we will indeed lose it. What do you think your greatest accomplishments were at EPA? Well, Stephen, I went there to really work on air quality and climate first. Uh, that was the office that I, I first managed as an assistant administrator. And, you know, I went there to try to accomplish a couple of things in particular. I wanted to really work on um, the uh, cross-state air pollution rule, is what we ended up calling it. Basically, I knew in New England we could never achieve clean air no matter how much we spent in order to reduce pollution because there were a lot of other, mainly power plants in other states that were simply sending their dirty air outside their own state boundaries and it was sort of weaving its way through the air uh, to New England. And I didn't like it. You know, I thought it wasn't fair. I thought it wasn't appropriate. And I knew that that's not what the law called for. And I wanted to take care of that issue. I just wanted everybody to be treated fairly and not have certain regions 
be so dramatically impacted by pollution that we could not ourselves correct. We needed the federal government to stand up. I wanted to do the mercury and air toxic standard, which was how do you reduce a neurotoxin that's being emitted in a way that's reasonable where the technologies are there and get everybody up to speed on that. I thought that was important for for our kids and, and our future generations. And I really wanted to take action on climate. But during the first uh, uh, term of the Obama administration, uh, the, the, the work was really focused on getting congressional action. And as we all can painfully remember, it fell short by two votes in the Senate from moving forward with a cap-and-trade regime for, for greenhouse gases. And so that's why, really, when, when the president and I discussed whether or not I wanted to stay on in the second term and indeed take over um, uh, as, uh, in Lisa Jackson's great footsteps uh, at EPA, what we talked about was climate. And that's what I really wanted to do from day one was to really make progress on what I think is the most significant public health challenge of our time, which is why we're sitting here at the School of Public Health. Okay, so you, you decide that you want to step up efforts to combat climate change. You need to, to develop some kind of regulatory construct to step in where Congress wouldn't. Do you... Is that something that you want to do? I mean, you're gonna, you know how hard it is to, to craft that kind of rule. You know how long it's going to take. You have this deadline of the end of the second term. Um, a lot of people maybe assume that the EPA just wants to step in all the time and, and regulate, regulate, regulate. Um, but as you hinted to, this, this is, you're trying to do something that Congress would not do. Is there a preference for some kind of legislative action? I'd like to know kind of what goes into that decision to develop yeah. a rule like the Clean Power Plan. Well, you know, let me just be clear, Stephen. I'm not new to this issue. I've been working on the issue of climate change for a long time. Um, Remember, it was Maz versus EPA that actually pushed this all the way to the Supreme Court um, that tested the Supreme Court on whether or not the Clean Air Act was an appropriate tool to use to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. And indeed, was it required? Right. This is the and legal foundation that's correct. of developing regulations for And so I was part of the whole group that was looking at these issues and recognizing that climate change was happening and knowing that we needed to have tools to begin to more effectively address this quickly and deeply because the climate was changing um, as we were sitting and thinking about it. And so so I've been working since before that. I actually helped to formulate and, and craft the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative here. And so I knew that there was a responsibility that the Supreme Court clearly articulated to EPA that wasn't being moved on. It wasn't that I was guessing whether or not EPA had the authority or responsibility. The Supreme Court made that pretty clear. As long as the regulation you're looking at is looking to reduce emissions in a sector where it's it's impacting health uh, or well-being. And so I knew we had to do something. And so the administration was very clear originally, and I supported this wholeheartedly, was that if Congress acted that there may be a more flexible uh, tool that could be built on over time, to address climate change in a way that might be more effective than a single regulatory standard. And so when that failed, however, we knew that there was still an obligation on the 
part of EPA. So well before I became administrator, we started exploring those issues because we were in litigation about it. We had been challenged why we weren't regulating in concert with that early Supreme Court decision. We didn't want to be forced into it. We wanted it to be a broad enough discussion. So we started well before we ever put pen to paper in the second term to have a discussion on how we would do this reasonably, how you could do it understanding how the energy system worked, understanding the transition that was happening to clean energy and into investments in energy efficiency, which continued to escalate in a great way. And we wanted to know how the utilities as well as other stakeholders, including environmental advocates, envisioned an administrative uh, executive response to this, as opposed to a more systemic cap and trade or, or price on carbon, which we did not have the authority to do. That was solely in Congress's is bailiwick. So we were really implementing and understanding our just not just our authority, but our responsibility to regulate greenhouse gases under the existing Clean Air Act. There's a whole subgenre of energy journalism quoting utility executives who are ba- responding to the clean power plan and saying this is where the industry is headed right you can just like go down the list and you can see pretty much every major utility executive speaking at a conference or speaking to a journalist and saying we're going to be building renewables and natural gas this is where things are headed and this is why we think we can meet the requirements of this regulation Around the 2013 time frame when you stepped into the EPA was when things really started to shift. Before 2012, I think a lot of people's perception was that the Obama administration was talking about climate change, but talking about it as if it were um, there were some economic trade-offs. And then when we started to see the cost of renewables come down, natural gas really have a major impact in the power sector, there was a noticeable shift in the politics. There, there didn't seem to be a talk of a trade-off. It was, wow, the industry can meet this. This is where investments are headed. So we're just doing what's in line with what the private sector is doing already. How did that shift the public conversation around the clean power plan and climate change in your eyes? I think it had a big impact. Uh, and, and let me explain. You know, first of all, a lot of the, the recovery money that President Obama spent went into renewable energy, clean energy, and energy efficiency. And that ended up, I think, combining with what was happening in the market anyways, which was to, to basically ensure that clean energy was winning. You know, and it, and, it, and it is, and it remains the winner today in the marketplace. And so what you saw us do with the Clean Power Plan is we spent a great deal of time talking to people so that we could build on the shift that was already happening. You know, Stephen, what most people don't understand is regulation is really in place to protect public health consequences that result from markets that don't consider and integrate public health into the market itself. But once markets do, (laughs) then, then they take off on their own. And so what we did with the Clean Power Plan was to recognize that clean energy and energy efficiency was moving then. There were opportunities. We took maximum advantage of those. We were very moderate 
in setting goals, I think, moving forward, knowing, as I know with utilities, when they figure out how to make money, they're going to just jump on it. And that's what we have seen. So we didn't need to go tough, but we went long. What our goal was to go to 2030 because really when you have a market that's shifting and when you see these technology leaps happening that made that market shift like that, the thing you want to do with the regulation is to provide certainty to the investment community so those technology leaps keep happening. Don't settle for what we have now. Make sure that you're rewarding it out as far as you can because as I think you and I know, the clean energy trains left the station and it's moving. We just wanted to make sure it continued to have an engine behind it and that the United States was where that innovation would happen. This is where we wanted to send that long signal because I believe very firmly as President Obama often said that the country that leads in clean energy is going to be the strongest country in the world. And I never wanted to cede that to any other country. That's what the Clean Power Plan was really all about. And the utility world responded wonderfully to the Clean Power Plan. They knew they could do it, which is why they're still saying pretty clearly, all the major players, that they can do this and they're going to keep investing in the same exact way that the Clean Power Plan asked them. And it's why states are doing better than where we, we, so many of them are doing better than where we even anticipated they would be in 2022. So I think the major problem we have with this disinvestment strategy, if you could call it that, um, in this administration is that is that they're just sending the wrong investment signals. They're seeding economic growth and jobs to China and other countries. And it doesn't make any sense for the people or the businesses in this country. What has it been like seeing Administrator Pruitt try to unravel what took you years to build up? Um, what's it like? It's not fun. <laughs> Let's just start there. Um, I, I, you know, it's sort of upsetting only because I'm not seeing any of these rollbacks framed uh, in the way that I would expect from somebody that disagreed with policies, which is I think I can get to the mission of the agency better in another way, where the mission of the agency is public health and environmental protection. If this was being done in the name of better protection, less expensively or more efficiently, then I'd feel better about it. But it's, that's not how it's being portrayed. I mean, it is just simply, uh, if, in my opinion, as I look at it, they came in with a things-to-do list, and that things-to-do list seems to have been written by business for the sole purpose of reducing cost to business without regard at all for the public health or environmental impacts that would result. Well, that's a really interesting point because I think it gets us to a more fundamental question of what is the agency's mission, and that has gotten lost, I think. So just describe that a little bit more for me, what the, what the agency has set out to do. I mean, of course, ask anybody across the political spectrum. Do they want to see less heavy-handed regulation? Do they want to see the most efficient measures taken? Of course. Um, but what we're seeing is an administrator who is working for business, not the goal of public health. Square that for us a little bit more. Yeah, I, you know, I would have the same goal. <laughs> 
you know, and every, every president has the same goal, and I don't blame them. And every business person would like to see things done that provided them maximum business opportunity with, with less cumbersome regulation. And one of the things that we really desperately tried to do is exactly that. We called it e-enterprise. How do we work better with states? How do we work better with the business community? How do we get more efficient transactions so that these are not overly burdensome or delaying opportunities for businesses and jobs moving forward? That was always part of the agenda. What we're missing in this administration is a simple acknowledgement that their job is to protect public health and the environment. That is fundamentally, that's EPA's job. That's the job Congress gave them. And their job was to do it by implementing and enforcing the regulations. There is just simply no discussion of those issues that I can see of any substance as opposed to looking at this as an opportunity to roll back regulations to reduce costs with almost lit, I, I really haven't even seen any discussion of the implications it has on your health or my children's future. And I resent that, um, and, and I'm shocked by it, to be very honest with you, because it's not a very sophisticated strategy, legally, or to gain momentum among the populace that you're, you're, you're uh, basically obligated to protect. Uh, but it also is not consistent with how all of my Republican colleagues who held my position <laughs> have looked at life. And they're just as distraught about it as I am because it, it, there are ways in which you can always do better and you should strive for those. But, uh, you know, you can example after example of this administration, you know, rolling back um, not just regulations but rolling back the work of the agency and the money go that goes to the agency that are really fundamental to core protections that we have relied on for a long time. I mean, they're cutting voluntary programs. You know, if you don't like heavy-handed regulation, why would you not like Energy Star? It is exactly building actual business for people in the United States who sell appliances, who, who build buildings and rent them out. There's ways of, of doing this job that, that, that have been enormously successful and are in no way costing businesses money. And those are still being rolled back. So there is something more here than finding a better way to meet the mission of the agency. It is ignoring or simply giving short shrift to the actual mission of the agency. How do you create space within um, the conservative movement to talk about these issues? You look back at pretty much everything, um, appliance standards, um, efficiency programs. They've had bipartisan support historically, and that's changed pretty dramatically. Um, meanwhile, you know, you have someone like uh, Administrator Pruitt who is working for a seemingly just a small subset of the business community because you actually look at, you know, the Fortune 500 list, the vast majority of those companies are investing in renewables and have some kind of cl climate action plan. It's a small subset of, you know, oil and gas companies that are fighting this, and that list is getting narrower and narrower. Yes. Um, so you, you, you have the business community that is pushing for this. Privately, a lot of Republicans do agree with doing something about climate change, are very excited about the clean energy transition. Publicly, how do you take all of that and create space for them to be able to 
take a bold position, whatever the conservative position is. Well, you know, I think that what I try to explain to people is to keep their eye on what's happening in the real world. We spend an awful lot of attention on rhetoric. We spend an awful lot of attention on announcements that we're leaving the Paris Agreement without recognizing that can't happen for years, recognizing that they're trying to roll back the Clean Power Plan, roll back the Clean Water Rule. And if you look at each of those proposals, you'll see that they're not particularly robust in identifying a legal or a science or a process issue foul that was created or identifying a better way to get to the mission of the agency. So, you know, I think the most important thing to remember is you got to look at what people, uh, what the real world is, is doing, not how this administration is portraying it. Because as much as they want to say that the clean power plant is hated by every utility, as you've noted, it, it really isn't. It is actually entirely consistent with with where energy is going. I could count on like one hand how many utilities are really opposed to it. I mean, can anybody really not sort of chuckle a little bit when you realize that the the highest renewable energy users are Iowa and Texas. You know, it, this is not just a, a coastal issue. This is a whole shift in how we produce energy. And the frustrating thing for me is that it's it, 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 many of these issues are being done uh, because it's saving money, but it's also saving lives because it's directly reducing traditional air pollutants, and it's bringing us closer towards a low-carbon future. There is no penalty here. There's, there's nothing happening here that you can't embrace. Now, I will absolutely acknowledge that with the reduction in coal, which has been happening since the 80s, because it's no longer competitive, you have communities and individuals in need. There is no question about that. But I don't see the, the Republican Party at this point or this administration embracing that challenge other than to tell them they can reverse the future by going backwards. And you and I know that's never going to happen. And it's a disservice to those people in those communities that deserve better from our government than to, than to tell them that, that things are going to be great if you make a few tweaks here and there and make it harder to do renewable energy or disinvest in energy efficiency because the market has already dictated that strategy and that's in its clean, a clean energy future. And we can embrace it um, if we meet our responsibility to help those that have been left behind. And if this country that is the richest and strongest in the world isn't able to do that and feels the need to just cajole a few people, um, then it's extremely disappointing. So whether or not we have a federal energy policy or a climate plan, solar and storage, that continues to get built. And if you want your solar and storage project to be the highest quality, you should be working with Shoals Technologies Group. Shoals is a leading manufacturer of balance of system solutions for solar and now storage, and their slogan is Inventing Simple. 
No matter the product, a combiner box, junction box, inline fuse, monitoring system, Scholz makes it with the highest performance standards and a drive toward elegance. It's got this new BLA solution, and it embodies this approach. It's an integrated wire harness that eliminates combiner boxes and significantly lowers installation costs. This is the type of stuff that's happening out there in the market that is making solar and storage explode. Uh, Scholz has been serving the industry since 1996, and Even though it's seen exponential growth, it still maintains the same commitment to quality. So if you're looking to step up your game with the best balance of system solutions in the industry, including the BLA solution, contact Shoals. You can find out more at Shoals.com, S-H-O-A-L-S dot com. The interchange is also brought to you by Five Works. Go beyond meter data with Five Works. You know, you're a utility. You're being asked to do so much from a regulatory perspective and from your customers. It's overwhelming. And, you know, you're being asked to better engage and service those customers. It's not only that, it's anticipating their expectations and preferences. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to turn to Five Works so you can truly know your customers. You're going to leverage your data and meet those rising standards for customer engagement to benefit your business because it benefits your bottom line and you can meet the requirements faced by you know the competitive landscape and by regulation. FiveWorks personalizes communication and drives consumer action at scale through behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning, enabling you to deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. Stay laser-focused on your consumers. Go to fiveworks.com slash the interchange for more. That's fiveworks with an X, fiveworks.com slash the interchange. Touch on that a little bit more. Tell me about um, what it's like being on the receiving end of Cole's outsized impact on the, on the, the, the political environment. When you raise the issues of what's happening in coal country and loss of jobs, that it's a, a very visceral response that you receive from people, and, and rightly so. But really at the bottom of all this, I think, is significant funding and money from the fossil fuel industry, not specifically the coal industry. Um, and Because I, th- I think very few people would be less concerned about ExxonMobil or Chevron, you know, than than the 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 folks that are losing their jobs or getting sick in the coal mines or communities that are disadvantaged. So it makes sense to to put folks in the coal industry out in front. Uh, but this really is all about a shift in society, and we tend to be able to live with that when it has to do with cell phone improvements over time and technology. But this particular issue seems to be, I think, um, worked hard by many to be the front face of of climate change, the, the few that are left behind. And I'm not suggesting that they're not worth the effort just because they're a small number compared to, for example, the folks working in clean energy dwarf the number of people working in coal country. But there is, a, there is a challenge here and elsewhere. If I can get a little bit higher up, Stephen, there's a real challenge to define a rural economy. And that's not, that's not just in the United States, it's elsewhere. You know, just think about it. We are urbanizing like crazy as a world and as a country. And there are many 
areas in which people used to thrive in rural areas that in and they're no longer thriving and this doesn't just have to do with the shift away from fossil fuel to renewable energy there's a real challenge to figure out how to allow people to live where they've traditionally lived maintain those vibrant communities that really defined their sense of place and family and just ignore the fact that that world is changing and tell them they got to buck it up. That's not going to work. There's a real challenge to figure out how to, how to um, revisit rural communities and build a structure of an economy that will allow them to maintain their sense of community while the rest of us, like me, enjoy living in an urban area. And that's a challenge not just here, but everywhere. It gets us to this bigger conversation about the future of economy as more jobs get automated, as people get pushed into service jobs out of you know uh, industrial work. And it's, it's a conversation we're not really having. You know, the, the warnings from experts are getting louder. The clear market signals are there. But in politics, we're just not having the conversation at all. And, and talking about climate impacts uh, and clean energy jobs and the energy transition is one subset of that bigger conversation. And we've moved farther away from even beginning to have that conversation, it seems. Automation is a big deal. People's ability to go to school for a technical job or an engineering job and think 10 years from that now, they'll still be viable is a real challenge. The pace of change today is unbelievable. And people my age feel it all the time because we can't even possibly keep up. And, and I, you know, it worries me a lot because people don't react well to change. And if you look at it, the coal industry started to go down in terms of their viability in the 80s as a result of automation. That's where job loss was happening. So change is happening in every sector now. And I think it's going to be very challenging to figure out how we deal with it and to look at the way populations and food is shifting in a way that's going to maintain our ability to to have healthy communities and individuals. And that's just not in foreign countries or the developing world. I see that in the developed world as well. It's going to be very challenging. We've gotten so lost in the political intrigue on maybe, you know, what regulation is being rolled back next, what announcement did Trump make in the Rose Garden, who did he fire this time, that we're completely lost the national conversation around what is ailing rural communities and what is causing this shift in politics in the first place. And we just need to completely reframe the conversation, which is not exactly easy. It's easy to say behind a microphone, but it's, um, it's something that is completely lost in today's politics. Well, you know, I actually think we can get that back again and but i but i think we need to remember that information is power just like it was before but having smart people get together and realize that a dysfunctional government erodes everybody's life and people have to step back and this is people of of every persuasion in and uh, Republicans and Democrats. We just have to get back to what brought this country together, the kind of core values we all share. And we do have to talk about the folks that are left behind. And it's not just in the rural areas, but in many of the urban areas. You see minorities in low-income populations that continue to be uh, heavily 
impacted by pollution. So there were, there's just work to do on, on all ends, but in, in many ways it starts people to people. It starts with people getting more engaged, people learning, reaching out to one another. And, and that's, just, that's a th- something that I think has eroded as well that we definitely need to get back. For those who may not understand the, the legal mechanics behind developing and unraveling a rule at EPA, why is it so difficult for Scott Pruitt and the Trump administration to unwind these rules? Well, Stephen, the and great do you think thing, they can? <laughs> the, it's meant to be difficult. You know, democracies are meant to be to provide stability. That's why we love to live here. We don't want to be overthrown every four years. It's meant to be hard to do. And rulemaking at the federal level is a difficult venture. It requires um, a, a, a following of the law in a way that that requires really rigorous understanding of how the courts have looked at this, what Congress intended, what they said, how should we interpret it, what kind of rules do you need to put in place, what kind of policies or guidance do you need to provide. It requires an understanding of the science that is tremendously difficult and has grown over time to a level of sophistication so that we can look at both both uh, what the strategies are that can get you the public health benefits, as well as what those cost and what the likely ramifications are so you can move forward in a way that's steady and that people will accept. It requires um, years of, of outreach and comment process. It, every comment that we receive in, in a rulemaking, which we're required to take comment, we actually have to answer those in a document so that the courts know we considered comments appropriately. So it's a very rigorous and lengthy process of public engagement, science, legal analysis. And the challenge that this administration has is they have not I think there are many. First of all, they didn't come in with a with looking at at what had been done in a rigorous way. Um, to look at what they liked and didn't like, what the opportunities were for new policy engagement, which they have every right to do. Instead, they came in with a list of things they didn't like, and they took a lot of shots out of the gate at delaying those in inappropriate ways that didn't follow the public process. So they have been slapped back on numerous occasions by the courts saying, hey, wait a minute, there's a public process here. And, and, and they haven't engaged the career staff in the discussion of the law and the science and the process so that they would know how to apply some kind of new policy discretion to rules that were already done. So if you look at the, the proposals that they have out to roll back rules, you'll see that they are... They just lack the kind of robustness that a democratic process requires because it's not just what the executive branch wants. It's what Congress said, and it's how the courts are going to look at those decisions. So they've made a lot of announcements. They haven't made a lot of progress. And, and I like that because their idea to, uh, of progress is my idea of rollbacks. I guess if there's anyone who would be able to make progress on that, it would be someone like Scott Pruitt, who's spent his career suing the EPA and working on behalf of of companies. So he kind of knows the EPA from the outside in better than anyone from a legal perspective. Yeah, he has. But, you know, he's not an environmental lawyer. 
and you know every every you know uh, sector has their expertise and you really need there are the best and the brightest minds at EPA and the career staff are taught to allow policy discretion. If you win an election, you have a right to your own policy. You just don't have your right to your own set of facts. You don't have a right to, to cut public process out. And you, you, you don't have a right to ask businesses in this country to live in uncertainty that is manufactured rather than based on a real effort to do the mission in a way that is is better for everybody and more efficient. Scott Pruitt, interestingly, has not decided to touch the endangerment finding. Mm -hmm. And that has upset uh, part of the Republican donor class. There are a lot of Republicans who would like to see him basically attack the legal underpinning of creating greenhouse gas regulations. He hasn't done that. Why do you think he hasn't done that? And what, what does that tell us? Um, you know, I, I have to uh, believe that, that he does know that this issue has been brought to the Supreme Court three times just to look at the endangerment finding in all three. They used very positive language to say how much the science was robust. Um, so I don't think there's a lot of room for them to win in that argument. Uh, but what I do know is they are taking great pains to try to reduce the staffing at EPA and cut the budget, particularly the science budget. They're questioning whether or not we should even have scientists that look at, for example, the toxicity uh, or public health impact of an exposure to a pollutant or a chemical as if they don't want to learn anything new so they can't be challenged as to how to apply it. And so the work of the agency is all about advancing the science so you understand the challenge of climate change, so you understand what chemicals' impacts are and can regulate them properly. So there are more, there's more than one way in which you can erode the ability of the agency to move forward under the law than to go to the courts and challenge something. And so I think they are selectively... Um, moving forward to cut the legs out of the agency, which is a science agency, by changing science policies, by constraining our ability to work with science professionals, by looking at cutting out laboratories that do vital work to understand the science, and work with states for in, in, to ensure protections are are in place. Um, so they're doing their best to get at this a number of different ways, but maybe even Scott Pruitt understands that the endangerment finding is pretty solid and the science is solid. And he, I don't think, um, uh, is, is willing to test that at this point. But you never know. I always ask, are you an optimist? Very much so. Um, and even in the face of, of what's happening in Washington, D.C., I always try to remind people that, that you know, this country is great. Our democracy is the best. Um, while they're trying to roll back things, I, I feel like I did my job as best I could, and I'm going to stand by that. And I think in the end, uh, we all value our kids, our health, our families, our communities, and and we'll get back to a place where where uh, that's obvious in terms of decisions being made in Washington. Gina, thank you so much. Stephen, it's been my pleasure. Thanks. 
Thanks a lot to Gina McCarthy for taking the time. Big thanks to all of you as well. Show your support for the show by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you subscribe. Send a link to your friends and colleagues. Hit us up on Twitter. We're currently putting together another show on blockchain. Uh, We just had our event in New York City, so we gathered a bunch of interviews from that, and we're just talking through some different concepts for an upcoming episode. We've been gathering a bunch of material, and Shale is going to be back for that one, so stay tuned. In the meantime, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next time. 